This episode of the Game Changing Attorney Podcast is intended for mature audiences only. It is presented raw and unfiltered to preserve the integrity of the conversation that follows. A lot of people think that I'm just some fucking warrior. Some guy that does push-ups and sit-ups and runs. (laughs) They got it so wrong. That's David Goggins, retired Navy SEAL, ultra-endurance athlete, and New York Times best-selling author of Can't Hurt Me and his latest book, Never Finished, Unshackle Your Mind and Win the War Within. They got it so wrong, man. Like, most of my true ability comes from the discipline of mind. I'm Michael Mogul, founder and CEO of Crisp, the nation's number one law firm growth company. I've built my business through practice, not theory. Crisp started with just $500 to my name and has grown to over eight figures in revenue over the last few years, earning a spot on the Inc. 500 list of the fastest growing private companies in America. Our approach has been to take everything we've learned about generating massive growth within our own organization and help the country's most ambitious and committed law firm owners do the same for theirs. In each episode of this podcast, I sit down with innovative market leaders from the legal industry and beyond to learn from those who thrive in the face of adversity, challenge the status quo, and define what it means to be a true game changer. I sat down with David Goggins to discuss how to transform criticism into fuel for growth, why discipline separates the good from the great, and how to unleash your inner savage. I got something to tell you. You can compete with the top minds in the world if you're willing to armor and callous your fucking mind and outwork them motherfuckers and dig deep. When most people see four walls, I see a massive empty space that deserves all kind of creativity to make it look beautiful. That's coming up on the Game Changing Attorney Podcast. David, welcome to the podcast. Hey, man, thanks for having me on, bro. appreciate it. I already know right up front that this is probably going to be one of our most popular podcasts. And it's it's interesting because I'm sure you've noticed this at this point, but there's like this allure that you have where it's with anything, any type of keynote from David Goggins, any type of video from David, podcast. What, what do you think it is? What, what do you think it is that attracts people to your content? I think it's my take it or leave it kind of mentality where I don't really think about your feelings. I don't really care about what you think or what you think about me or if you're soft, if you're weak, if you're hard, if you're an alpha, if whatever the hell you are, I just don't really care. And I'm going to say what I believe is going to get you better. It may make you pissed off at me in the interim, but in the long term, if you really think about what I'm saying, I'm saying things to you that I had to listen to and, you know, tell myself, and it's just Sometimes hard truth sucks. Mm-hmm. I mean, I even saw it, even recently, I think this was like over the weekend or sometime last week. I think it was somebody impersonating you right on, on LinkedIn and you put out this video and even this video, I'm, I'm like sharing it with people I know. I'm like, look at how pissed off David is about this guy. But more importantly, by the end of this video, I started to feel sorry for the guy that was impersonating you because of what he has coming. <laughs> yeah, man, that, that that poor fellow. I mean, I actually feel bad for him, too, man, because. I just don't put up that kind of shit. When I became whoever I am now, people always say, you know what? With success, you're going to have these issues. And I just don't buy into all that shit. You know, everybody thinks you got to settle when you become successful. And it's just people are going to take your book and they're going to bootleg your book. And it's just great signs of success. Well, you can sit there like most people do and just sit there and take that shit. Or you can go ahead and believe that, you know what, I'm, I don't give a fuck how successful I am. I'm going to hold your ass accountable for what the fuck you're doing. And that's just how it goes for me, man. So I just hold people accountable no matter how successful you are. You must hold people to the fucking standard. I want to talk a little bit about the the most recent book, Never Finished. And I heard things even in the process of writing my second book. Everyone would tell me that the first one's always better. The second one's not as good. And with a book like Can't Hurt Me, that was probably one of the greatest books of, of all time. Even with that in the back of your mind, thinking, how do you top the second one? Now, personally, I believe you topped it. The second book is better than the first. The first one's phenomenal. But why why even write a second book? Well, the thing about it is, like, you know, Can't Hurt Me was, I call it your bachelor's degree. It was the very basic nuts and bolts about how to get the fuck up and stop feeling sorry for yourself. And the funny thing about it is that most people who hear me, they hear me cuss all the time. 
They hear me cuss. They hear me going off, carry the boats, carry the logs, all this shit. They hear all this hoopla, but they don't understand, man. There's a very, very, very philosophical side of David Goggins. And that's the side that that book right there, Never Finished, gives them is that that's the real me. Like what they see, they see me in a one minute video when I'm fucking hyped up. And the whole idea about that one minute video is that I'm trying to get you to fuck off the couch. And I don't have 10 to 20 minutes to give you some great philosophy about why we need to get off the couch. I just need to spark your ass off that fucking couch. But when I write these books, I'm able to go deeper. I'm able to grab your attention, hold it, make you sit there and simmer on some of these thoughts. So my whole life is not some big hoopla pep rally. My whole life is about going into the dungeon and going into that fucking area where I can go through all this shit and become a philosopher. I really am a philosopher, man. A philosopher about the mind, about how far we can go. And the first book didn't do that. And I did it on purpose because no one knew who the fuck David Goggins was. So I'm not going to give you never finished first because I haven't really gone out here and told you who David Goggins is. So now they knew who I was and now I can bring it to the next level. And what's funny about that, my friend, the third book that no one's even heard about that's almost done. It puts that book to shame. Right out of the gate, you never finished. You talk about the fact this is not a self-help book. You, you said it's really kind of a, a boot camp for your brain. And you talk about the difference between hope and belief. How, how do you differentiate the two? So basically, as you know from the book, um, hope is bullshit. When I was going through SEAL training, a lot of people hoped that they would pull us from that cold water. Man, hope ain't going to get you shit because it's not in your hands. Hope is not in your hands. You can't control hope, man. You can't. It's just some, hopefully this thing happens. But when you get belief, when you start to create belief, and belief isn't like an after-school special. Most people think, oh, man, like your mom and dad, you know, you need to believe in yourself. You know, Sesame Street, when I was growing up and shit, you know, you need to believe in yourself. That's not the belief I'm fucking talking about. It's the belief that you harness through hard work and dedication. And it's something that you know what you are capable of because you've gone there several times in those dark times. So my belief, why I kept on going back to Navy SEAL training and going back to all these different things, not because I hoped training would get easier. It's because I believed I could fucking make it. Through the training I put myself through, I just wasn't doing and executing as I should. And I knew that it was all on me. So then when I put that belief into work and that hard work came to fruition, everything happened for me. And for the few people, let's say that may not know of David Goggins yet, you know, you describe your, your upbringing as having front row seats to a horror movie. If you could briefly right. give the people listening some context on that. So what I was talking about with that one was my mom and can't hurt me. My mom was like, you're not going to put some of my life in this. But over a period of time, I'm like, mom, this, this just wasn't your fucking life. I was a young kid watching you go through this shit. I was living it with you. And I didn't have the brain to absorb the adult life that you put my childlike brain in. So I lived it even more than you lived it. So I had to get my mom to a point where she even let me go here. So what I mean by that is I watched my mom and I was able to put all of my horror to the side because when you're watching your mom go through horrific things and I was never sheltered, it wasn't like my mom kept me from like my soon to be stepdad got murdered. It wasn't like she said, oh, we got to keep this from David. People tried to kill him several times before they finally killed him. And we continued going to this man's house. They tried to kill him in the garage that, you know, that, that they finally shot him and killed him in. We were still going to the house where this man, they, they attempted to kill him. And we we're going there almost every weekend. My mom just didn't give a fuck, you know, and watching her get beat by my father and then slowly watching her evolve into this woman who marries a guy that literally 
choked a woman to death and was in prison. And I'm watching all this shit unfold. And it was like watching a horror flick. And I was front row. Shit, I was the fucking, I, I was part of the fucking director's crew. I mean, that's how close I was to the whole thing, man. It was, it was crazy. You state that when you're living in hell, the only way to find your way out is to confront the devil himself. You know, who, who was that right. devil for you? It took several years for me to figure out who the devil was. And the devil was my father. The devil was my father. But what I didn't put and never finished was the devil really was me. So what happened was I put all this blame and trust me, my father and a lot of people had to do with my upbringing on how shitty it was. But like I put in that book, no one's going to come back and say, hey, man, I apologize. Maybe someone does. Very few people will. So at the end of the fucking day, when all things are said and done with, while my dad was the devil and I believed that for a long fucking time, I had to, I had to confront him. And when I confronted the devil, so what I thought was the devil, I realized that I was the true devil. I was the one holding me back. I was the one looking for the scapegoat. And, you know, I was the one looking for all these ways to say, it's okay, David. You're a loser. You're a born loser, so it's okay. And I was hoping my dad was going to give me that confirmation. And he was a loser himself. But at the end of the day, when I left there, I realized, well, shit, man, it's on me. My dad's fucked up. My mom's fucked up. The people around me are fucked up. They're not going to save you. You got to fucking save yourself, my friend. So that's when all that reality hit me when I went to Buffalo to see my dad on that drive home. I was like, man, this rest of your life is going to suck. It is going to suck, not because you're going to be a loser, but because you're going to fucking finally start to win. And winning is not easy, my friend. It's interesting how, you know, going into Never Finished, you, you, you think about how did the work ethic, how did David Goggins develop this work ethic and enter Sergeant Jack? Right. Because if there was, you know, there was no Sergeant Jack, there may be no David Goggins. Uh, if you could elaborate on how he practiced discipline in his life. Yeah. So Sergeant Jack, you know, was my grandfather. He did 30 some years in the military. And it wasn't like he just did 30 some years in the military, man. This man retired from the military and he pretty much made his own military. When he retired, that's when he became really hardcore. And he wore his uniform every day when he retired. He wore that uniform every day. And I didn't know anything. You know, I was some young kid that was tortured from my family, you know, from my father. And I come in, you know, when my mom left my father, we moved to Brazil, Indiana. You know, my mom drives up and I'm thinking I'm going to get some pity party from my grandparents. And Sergeant Jack looked at me, man, like I was a brand new recruit coming off the bus, man. He didn't give a fuck about what my dad did to me. He pretty much, without saying it, was like, look, young man. There's a lot of kids out there who live like you do, who have gone through what you've gone through. Maybe not as bad, but you're not the only one. And my grass needs to be cut. My cars need to be clean. The yard needs to be raked. He taught me a lot of lessons within, within the lesson of no one really gives a fuck. You have to continue to fucking live your life or you can choose to be doomed and become a statistic. Like a lot of young people who fall back on their childhood when their childhood wasn't good. He never said any of this, though. It was through his actions by not feeling sorry for me, by how he worked me like a dog, that it came to me that this is what life is. Life is a, it's a training ground. And like going through Buds and Ranger School, very few people make it through. While you may live a long life, it doesn't mean you fucking graduated at the top of the class. You just lived a long, boring, despicable life. And that's not what I wanted to do. So Sergeant Jack started me out young and I had to learn these lessons on my own through the discipline of hard work and cutting the grass and raking the leaves and doing all these things before school and after school. And he just built a mindset in me that I was like, okay, one day I can fall back on this. But I realized that Sergeant Jack taught me something that I'm going to have to go back to for the rest of my life. 
and it seems like there's like a correlation between someone's level of discipline and, and the and the standards they set for themselves. There's a there's a quote in the book when you say that when a half-assed job doesn't bother you, it speaks volumes about the kind of person you are. And until you start feeling a sense of pride and self-respect in the work you do, no matter how small or overlooked these jobs might be, you will continue to half-ass your life. Is that like Sergeant Jack inspired? No, that was really me inspired. So so like I said, Sergeant Jack just worked me to death. And the lessons, it wasn't like Mr. Miyagi. Like I said, he, he was my Mr. Miyagi, but it wasn't like one day I got pissed off, wax on, wax off. It wasn't like that shit. As I was doing this stuff, I started having different feelings. Like I would always like half-ass my work. And Sergeant Jack would always say, you know what? You're going to get it. You're going to do it until it's done right. So I got tired of continuously trying to get this white wall, this tiny little white wall on this black tire completely done and then when I started realizing I'm wasting my time just fucking get it done or I'm gonna be out here in this fucking garage all day and night into the next day and night and I said you know what then when I started doing it the right time you know first time every time Sergeant Jack never gave me like hey good job he never said that but I started feeling I started knowing that I was doing good work because I wasn't doing it 20 times. I was doing it once. And then I started being like, my God, this feels fucking good. It feels fucking good to fucking get a job, have a task, and put my all into that task. And then be able to move on to the next task because I completed that task to the fullest and the greatest of my ability. And then that feeling just stuck with me. And I was like, okay. This is what I need every day in my life. I don't need someone to say, good job, David. I don't need a fucking pat on the back. Everything became internal. I started feeling this feeling I never had before. You know, like I thought I was a born loser. And just cleaning a tire and cleaning a car to the best of your ability changed everything. Raking a yard and not leaving one fucking leaf. Not one leaf. And then one would fall. And I would get that one leaf. It just became something that was like, okay, I see dirt. Don't pass the dirt. Clean the dirt. It just started absorbing. And before you know it, man, it just morphed into a man that was like, we got to get it done regardless. And David, I want to talk about this alter ego that you created, Goggins. right? And, and I'm curious, like, what led to the creation of the Goggins alter ego? Well, discipline was huge. But then we always fall back on what's, on what's comfortable to us. What's comfortable for me was if it's easy for me, you know, I'm going to do it. And so when I was going through pararescue training, I ran up against an obstacle that I didn't think I was going to run up. And it was the water. I fucking hated the water. And, but I tried hard to get over that. And I would go to the pool and I would try and I would try but my mind wasn't strong enough. David Goggins, even with all the discipline, I didn't have that next fucking level. When you're truly committed to something, not like where you like, you know, I want to be a doctor, but when I run into this roadblock, I don't want to be a doctor. No, I'm going to be a doctor come hell and high water. I needed that kind of commitment. And David Goggins didn't know about that commitment. I knew how to wash a car. I knew how to clean a house. I knew how to, you know, do all these manual labor jobs. But when it came down to true suffering, to the highest of suffering, I didn't have that next level of, all right, motherfucker, we have this next level. David Goggins wasn't enough. So I went into my mental lab and realized, but I want to be great, but I don't have greatness in me. So I had to create a motherfucker that was great. And in my mind, I'm really big on visualization. And people may think it's all kind of bullshit. Believe what the fuck you want. I don't give a shit. This is a true shit right here, man. I went in my mind. I said, okay, I want to look like this. I want to feel like this. And I want to have a mind that is fucking cast iron steel. That is fucking never dull. That is always fucking sharp. That was the biggest thing I wanted. I wanted to hit obstacles that fucked most people up, including myself. But I didn't waver. I didn't fear. I didn't run away. 
I just stayed and marinated in the fucking fear, in the suffering. And through that, building Goggins, I will become Goggins when necessary. And I started to do these things on my own. I had my own training ground. I built a training ground. I wasn't Navy SEALs. If you go to Navy SEAL training not prepared, you're going to quit. So I built this training ground on my own. And I started doing these horrific things that David Goggins couldn't handle. But Goggins started slowly coming up. I started putting that visualization of the guy I wanted to create. And in that water, when things got hard, when I was training on my own, Goggins would appear. Goggins would appear. When David Goggins would come up, Goggins would smack him the fuck down and say, no, motherfucker, we're going to drag you through this. And that's kind of how it happened over a period of time. This man evolved. Goggins became the guy that can withstand all kind of torture and pain and keep coming after you. And that's where that next step with uh, evolution became. And speaking of Goggins appearing when you need him, in the book you talk about the Moab 240, uh, this 240-mile race in Utah. You talk about this elevation gain of over 31,000 feet. You're 200 miles or so into the race. And I believe this was in, uh, in, in 2020. But there was a time where I think you describe it. You went in uh, porta potty or something. David went in. Goggins came out. If you could speak to that. Yeah, man. So, like I said, nothing's permanent. Nothing's permanent. That's why I'm always big on... You have to keep what you want to be in the front of your mind because you're going to always lose it within the suffering and suffering. People always hear me say suffering. It's not just physical, man. There's so many forms of suffering out here. It's not even funny. And most of them are not physical. Most of them are psychological. So I'm going through this race. I get to mile 200 of my second Moab and I'm doing well, but I'm in extreme pain, man. My fucking ass is raw. My damn feet are broken. I have six layers of tape on my... It's just... I'm, I'm jacked, man. I have 40 miles to go. I'm having this woe is me. Why the fuck am I out here? I'm at high elevation. I can't breathe real well. Everything's wrong. So I'm with my pacer. His name is Mike. And I see this porta potty of sorts. And I'm like, I just need to get off the fucking course. So I lie to Mike. I'm like, hey, man, I got to go to the bathroom. And I go in this outdoor house. There's a bathroom in it. So I went in there and I'm, I'm in there and I'm, and I'm thinking, I'm like, God, man, I just wish I would fall into this fucking toilet. You know how like, like big sinkholes? I just wish I fall in there, man, and, I, and maybe I'll break my leg or maybe something would happen where I can't finish the race. And as I'm talking to myself like this, out of nowhere, Goggins appears. In my mind, he's like, man, are you really fucking talking like this, bro? Imagine if you were to fucking be able to have people hear your dialogue right now, man. You came out here in 2019 and this course kicked your ass. And all you wanted to do was come back here. You trained on fucked up knees. You put so many miles in. You visualized all this. You've, you've run this course a million times. And now you're in a fucking porta potty like a little fucking bitch whining and crying to yourself, lying to your pacer that she got a shit. So basically what happened was Goggins got a hold of me and knifed David Goggins and stuck him in that porta potty and Goggins came out. And when Goggins came out with 40 miles to go over a 240 mile run, it was the most epic ending of any race I can remember. That last 40 miles was something that I can't even describe. But what I will tell you is, once again, it shows you what the determined mind can do. There's no David Goggins Goggins. There's just David fucking Goggins. And that's what people don't get, man. David Goggins just changed his fucking mindset in that porta potty. My feet still hurt. My back was still aching. The pack was still heavy. Everything was the same. The only thing that changed was how I approached the situation. I no longer wanted to be a victim of that race, a victim in my mind. I wanted to dominate when most people would refuse to dominate. 
I wanted to dominate under the most harsh environment. And that's what happened. And your pacer, Mike, I mean, you, you describe him as a fellow savage. What was his response oh, yeah. to this when he, said, when he saw you come out? Well, you know, he was used to me for about a period of an hour and a half, two hours, just being like a little punk. I would walk, I would run, I would kind of lean over. When I came out, he didn't know the David Goggins Goggins thing. I hadn't talked to him about that there's a, another person that lies deep within inside me. So when I started running, he couldn't believe that I started dropping my pacer. Think about this. I'm 200 miles in. No, no sleep breaks. Fucked up ankle. And he knows I'm jacked up. And this guy who has run, I think, about 60, 70 miles with me at the time, he knows I'm 200 miles into this. When you start dropping a guy, and he knows he's a savage, he's run several ultra races, he knows how broke a man is at 200 miles. I'm throwing down seven-minute miles, man, and I'm leaving him. I know what he's thinking about because I know he's a savage. And I know what I'm trying to do to Mike. I'm using Mike as the ultimate ammunition because two savages and one savage knows that the other savage has gone 200 miles. I'm fucking with this guy now. I'm using him as fuel. I'm using his anger, his hate. He's mad at me now. He's mad at himself. I'm using it. This is my boy, but I'm using him. I'm dragging that shit. I want him to be mad at me so he can bring the best out of me. And that's what happens. He's mad, so we get down to in this fucking hill. Big just sent down, and he's like, he gets on the phone. He calls his wife. He calls my fucking girl, Jennifer. He's losing his shit. What the fuck? He's like, this guy just fucking dropped me. He's literally out of his mind. He can't believe what he saw. And then from then on, man, the next probably 15 miles or so before the next checkpoint, the real race was gone. Even though it was still going on, it was me and Mike. And there was two guys out there barely talking, just going at it. And that's what I wanted. And that's what Mike was thinking. He never told me really what he was thinking. He showed me, how the fuck are you able to do this? And I pissed him off. And it was beautiful. It's like when you when you see someone do something, it, it means more than when someone tells you something. And and I know in, in Can't Hurt Me, you talk about the concept of taking souls. And I'm not sure you, you were trying to take Mike's soul in that moment, but if you could describe what that concept means. It's kind of like that. So the basic of taking souls is when the normal human being, being in the situation that you're in, would be defeated. And the person or people with you know that in that situation, a normal human being would be defeated in that situation. And you rise above the normal human being. So it makes all the people around you feel lesser than. Therefore, you own a part of their soul. Because in that moment, and I got it from going through Navy SEAL training. I watched all those Navy SEAL instructors who had gone through Hell Week, and now they're putting me in my class through Hell Week. I'm watching all of them because they all know at Wednesday we're all defeated. Everybody's fucked up on Wednesday. And it's Wednesday. But I got the information. I know where you were on Wednesday. And I know what you're thinking. I should be at Wednesday. I should be as fucked up as you are. I'm not going to give you that. I'm going to show you what Wednesday is for me. Wednesday for me is not Wednesday for you. And so when I did that, I saw the instructor's faces when I was strong as fuck. I was at hour 80, 90 of Hell Week. I was like at, at, at minute one. It was like Hell Week had just started. So why do you take someone's soul? Because they don't know how you're able to do this at that state of mind, that state of being, and that kind of cold and misery, but you find more when no one else can, a smart human being will see that and you will elevate them. And that's what I did to my boat crew. My boat crew was fucked up, but they saw my elevation. So they said, fuck, if this guy can do what one man can do, another can do. 
So they elevated themselves. But as my boat crew elevated, I saw that everybody else was like, what the fuck is going on? And so we used all of that ammunition, all those sad, long faces, all of that like questioning, what the fuck? And we used it for even more ammunition. So taking souls is when you put yourself in an environment that most people won't succeed in and you thrive in that environment. Now, now it's interesting because I think one person could see all this and see you in action and feel inspired. And then there's a whole another set of people that kind of have the opposite effect in the sense that, you know, in the book you talk about, sometimes people feel uncomfortable around you because they feel judged, which is not true. You're not judging them, but really they're judging themselves. I'll tell you the truth, man. I was a fucked up person. I had a lot of problems. But I'm going to give credit where credit's due. When you work as hard as I do and people don't want to believe it, but they know it's true. They, they know it's true. It's, it's how I talk. It's how I look. It's a look in a, in a, in a person's eye. You know, it's motherfucking bullshitting you. So you can think I'm lying all you want, but in the back of your mind, you fucking know this guy's the real deal. So when I get around you, I'm like a fucking lie detector. I'm not calling you out. I'm not saying a word, but the second you start to get close to me, like those metal detectors, you get that metal detector on the beach, you find that watch in the sand. That's what I am with people, man. They get around me and they know what they're not doing. They know how hard they're not trying. And I bring out the worst in them because they know that God, man, they start to judge themselves without me even saying a word. They start to go through their own resume of life and start realizing I'm not doing enough. I haven't done enough. And what that does in turn is it makes them very angry at me or whoever is working hard. Whoever that hardworking person is that they get around, they're immediately not going to like you because they know that you're working hard for everything you have and they just refuse to do that. So the only thing best to do is run their fucking mouth and talk shit about it. People always talk about they've got naysayers and critics and haters and so on. But look, you can look at any of the videos you post online. Just look in the comments. They're all there. And you talk about a yep. strategy that you've used to actually turn this into energy. The, the haters mixtape. What is the haters mixtape? So basically, when I was younger, things used to bother me. Hate bothers everybody. People want to say it doesn't bother them, but it does. When someone wants to get on there and, and, and talk about you in a way that's not truthful or just talk shit about you in whatever way, you know, they want to. I started realizing, so I'm, I'm always about studying the mind. But most of my studying, it comes on studying my own mind, but studying other people's minds. So for the longest time, I was like, man, why are people talking so much shit? But once I started studying the mind of the weak, you'll never hear me talking about somebody else. You never hear a successful person talking negatively. They may give criticism, but it's criticism to help you get better. They'll never just go on and start, oh, this motherfucker, man, because we ain't got time for that shit. I ain't got time to go on your Instagram or your Twitter or your Facebook or your blog or anything and run my mouth about you. First of all, it shows I'm not a man. Second of all, it shows I'm just a bitch. So I started studying these motherfucking weak people who, these trolls, these shit talkers, these haters. I'm like, man, you're exactly where I was years ago. So the more I studied and the more I realized, man, the problem's not me. And this in the after school special, man, I'm not here to make you feel better. It's just the truth. You'll never meet a hater doing better than you, my friend. And that is the truth. So what I do is I take all of that shit and I get all the hate, I get my phone, and I talk into it. What everybody said about me, I'll talk into it. So then I started having fun with it. I started putting beats to it, different tracks to it, Eminem soundtracks, whatever. Started putting on a loop. And the next before I know it, man, I'm like, damn, this shit's kind of fucking badass. Who the fuck gets their haters' content that are talking about yourself and I listen to it. And before I know it, it becomes the ultimate fuel. Even though I'm not listening to their shit that way, it just gives me a spark on those days when I'm like, I want these motherfuckers to hate me even more. The haters follow you like a motherfucker. 
They know more about you than your mama knows about you. They get all your books. They get all your podcasts. They get all your social media. They know where you live. They know where you sleep. They know everything about you. Me knowing that, I'm going to let you know about this too, my friend. I'm going to give you some more fuel to hate on me, man, for you to not like yourself even more. So that's that's where all that comes from. <laughs> well, well, dude, I, I'm curious. So with the first book, Can't Hurt Me, immediately goes to the top of the charts, New York Times bestseller. Uh, around the time I think Michelle Obama's book came out. And then I don't know if you meant to do this again, but you fast forward a few years later, Michelle Obama comes out with a second book right around the time Never Finish releases. And boom, again, once again, at the top of the charts. How did life change for you between the first book and the second book, just from the standpoint that David Goggins becomes a household name financially. You know, you're, you're taken care of. You, you kind of look at things in terms of like, where's the motivation coming from then? And I probably used the wrong word because it's probably discipline. But where's the desire and that fire coming from after, you know, you've achieved all this success? Like I said in the beginning, a lot of people think that I'm just some fucking warrior. Some guy that does push-ups and sit-ups and runs. <laughs> they got it so wrong. They got it so wrong, man. Like most of my true ability comes from the discipline of mind. And that's where my motivation was, is that most people put me in a category. They didn't know the side of me that can write deep, thoughtful books and give people things that can make you cry, make you happy, make you sad. I can bring you through an emotion. I can give you 10 years of life within three pages. For me, I grew up and I thought I was real stupid. I thought I was dumb. You know, I thought I couldn't read and write all these different things, man. So the motivation for me now is that while I do run a lot and I do do a lot of working out, that's where I go to school. That's my school, man. That's where I learn. That's where the deepness of my thought comes from. That's where the philosophical side of me comes from. That's where all my parables come from. I speak in like Bible terms a lot of times and people don't understand man, how, how deep I am. So when I go up against a Michelle Obama and I'm a self-published guy, you know, they spent over a million dollars trying to get Michelle Obama's book out there. Even though I didn't choose to come out with Michelle Obama both times, it was by chance. It was the energy of the world. I come out with the, one of the biggest women, people of all time. All right, motherfucker, let's go. You're a smart, brilliant woman. This ain't got nothing to do with fucking running, swimming, push-ups, sit-ups. It's the intellectual side that motherfuckers thought I didn't have, that I do have. That was the motivation. I'm going to go up against the best of the best in book writing. And I'm going to be better than you. That was the motivation. The creative mind through the suffering, through the life that I thought was horrible, but it was the ultimate training ground. The lessons I learned didn't come from Stanford or Yale or Princeton. They came from the hard knocks of life. I got a diploma in hard knocks, man. And so now I'm writing from the fucking calloused mind. I'm not writing from the Yale and Princeton's and Harvard's and being with all these political groups and shit. I'm writing from real world, deep, savage, deep end shit. And the beauty of that, when I go up against these savage, great minds, these great people who are smart and the whole world knows them. And just a fraction of people know me. But every day, Jennifer wakes up. I'm looking right at them. My book's right by them. I put no money in the marketing. Put no money in the shit. It's just grit, hard work, and the Sergeant Jack disciple of discipline shit that got me there. So all these motherfuckers who think they may be stupid, who think they may not be able to get it done... I got something to tell you. You can compete with the top minds in the world if you're willing to armor and callous your fucking mind and outwork them motherfuckers and dig deep. When most people see four walls, I see a massive empty space that deserves all kind of creativity to make it look beautiful. I love it. I love it. And, and David, you talk about the importance of having the right people in the foxhole with you. How do you know who the right people are? You know what? That's, that was something that took me a lot of years to figure out. You know you're the right people in your foxhole. When you're waking up at 3 o'clock in the morning, you're going to bed at midnight, and you're waking up at 3, and no one says, is this smart to do? You need some time off. You need to take a break. 
When I start hearing that shit while I know what I'm doing to myself, I was behind the power curve, man. When everybody starts off in first grade, I had them negative grades. I started off in the fucking dungeon. Man. I had to dig out of the fucking damn grave to get the first grade. So now when you're 20 years old, where everybody graduated high school and all sort of shit, man, I got to make time up. So while people think 24 hours is one day, for me it's three, four, five days. I got to make up time. I'm behind. I got to go to summer school in my mind. When a motherfucker who's with me realizes this motherfucker's got to go to summer school in his mind, he's got to make up time. He needs 22 hours of the 24. And they just get it. He's trying to go somewhere. You are the right person for my foxhole. I don't want to hear no shit about resting. I can't rest right now. I don't hear no shit about what I'm doing to myself. I know what I'm doing to myself. Did you see how I came up? I got to catch up now. And that's what life is about. Sometimes you are raised in a position where you are behind. We have to make that time up. I'm sorry. It may be inhumane. You may be unbalanced. It may not look right to you. I don't give a fuck. It's the situation that life put me in. And I need people to say, when I don't want to get up at 3 in the morning, I need a motherfucker in my life that sees me go to bed at 12 and wakes me up at 3. Saying, you need to get this shit done. That's the foxhole. I don't need critiquing. I need pushing. I need pulling. I need anger. I need passion. I need drive. I need them motherfuckers, man, those bad days. I don't need somebody in my ear saying, man. Because then that's all a person needs is that. Support can go a lot of ways, man. It can go a lot of ways. I support you in everything you do, and I support you in everything you don't do. I don't want the support in everything you don't do. I need the support always in the things that you do do. And as you say in the book, um, you don't need to be blowing noses and wiping buttholes when you're in a firefight. <laughs> no, sir. No, sir. Here's your weapon. Here's your ammo. And that's your corner. And that's your sector. Have fun. From everything you've described, I mean, you, you have the kind of life that it, it's almost like fiction would have even been stranger. You talk about that you're not like Will Smith in the pursuit of happiness in the sense that when, <laughs> you know, when, when you hit a high point in your life, there's always something around the corner, right? That's, that's all, that's potentially going to strip you down of everything and put you back to zero. Has that always been the case? Always, man. Whenever I am, I'm that one person, man, who's like, has the flag in hand, climbing Mount Everest. And I am almost getting ready to stick that flag in hand and the avalanche comes. Every time, man. And it sucks. But you have to know why you're here on earth. Whether it's the truth or not. And through a lot of years of living, I, I honestly believe I was put here to show people how to get through the dark times. What mindset it takes to get through the dark times. When you've almost reached the pinnacle, but you never will. You never will. Just because the lessons aren't learned at the top of the mountain, my friend. The lessons are learned in the middle, at the beginning, never at the very top. So that's why I became so knowledgeable, man, because I never made it to the top of the mountain. And every time I almost did... I had to climb back up. Every time I climbed back up, the lessons became more crystallized. Everything became a lot more clear to me. And then some of the things I missed on the first climb, I got on the second climb. But it doesn't mean because you're climbing the same mountain over and over again that you're not super fucking successful. It doesn't mean that at all. I'm super fucking successful. But the success came from climbing the mountain over and over and over again and now I know the fastest route up that motherfucker. I know all the fucking dangers. I know all the fucking trip holes. I know all the fucked up wiring and ropes and fucking anchor points. I know them all. So that mountain that I climb every day isn't as hard as it was when I was 24, 25, 26. I'm much more knowledgeable, but I still gain a lot more knowledge from it. So now I, I, I hike up it versus climb up it now. 
And I know throughout the book, you talk about that there's no transformation without a breakdown. Faced with probably a million times where you could give up and quit. Nobody's looking. Nobody would know. You don't do it. But you also describe, you know, that it's not always the wrong move to quit. In what instances would you say it would make sense for someone when they're considering giving up or retreating in some way to actually do that? I always have uh, a sheet in my head, a piece of paper of all of the things I have to do in life. And I break that down into everything I can do in this situation. It's a list of exhausting all options in that one situation. You have to go through every fucking scenario. You have to have tried everything to succeed. And then beyond that, think about how you can link up these two things on the list because maybe these two things together will help me succeed. So once you go through the whole list, then you got to start pairing the things up within the list. And once you know in your heart, and this is called the accountability way beyond some accountability mirror that I've literally tried and exhausted every single option. That is when you say to yourself, maybe this is not for me, but nobody Nobody does that. So you with this question, the answer is almost never. Because no one has the patience to sit in the muck in the filth of life for years. It takes me years to do shit. Not like months. It takes me years. So people don't have that kind of patience, man. They just don't. So they never get to where they really want to go. They want it now. And now is not the answer. And it's interesting. We had Tim Grover on the podcast and he talks about the pain of discipline versus the pain of regret. From your perspective, any regrets looking back? You know what? I have a lot of regrets. Most of my regret comes from when I was younger and I didn't have, I call it self. I didn't have self. And that means self-esteem. Self-awareness, self-belief, self-motivation, self-discipline. So when you don't have that, you attract the people in your life that, that you're most like. And I was most like a loser. So I attracted a lot of fucking losers. And when you are in that mode of life and you're not around people getting up at three, four o'clock in the morning grinding, saying, come on, motherfucker, let's go. I'm not talking about the gym. I'm talking about when it comes to making money, when it comes to fucking anything. These people who are fucking just out of their mind obsessed. I didn't have that. I had people who are not waking up till three, four o'clock in the afternoon, going to bed late, eating shitty foods, had no desires, had no goals, had nothing. And I sat there for too many years. And I got involved with people like that. I have relationships with people like that. And what happens is that becomes who you are. So my biggest regret is not building myself fast enough to not go through the beginning of my life in the dungeon. It took too long to come out of the dungeon, almost too long to where there would have never been a David Goggins. There is a time limit on everything, my friend. Everything has a fucking expiration date. There is no tomorrow. Some of us get granted a tomorrow, but there really is not one. I was lucky. And you never want to bring luck into your fucking life. Yeah, I know you talk about this early on in your life. You'd read books or even magazines. You were fascinated by high achieving people. And I think in one of the examples, you were reading like a sports magazine, found that like the only thing you had in common with like Michael Jordan was your birthday, that, that you didn't have the talent but you saw that they also had other skill sets. They had, you know, they developed courage and grit and all these different things that you could perhaps harness and develop those characteristics. And then I think you even talk about through the book that like, man, if I had the town, all of you would have been in trouble, you know, in spite of everything oh, yeah. that you've achieved. Yeah, I see that right now, man, because I was able to achieve so much. And once again, people want to give me a title because it makes them feel better. And that's where a lot where my passion comes from. And you can hear it now, man. I, I fucking yell when I talk to people, man, because I go back to those moments where there was no talent. It was just try again, try again, try again. 
And that sucks, man. It builds an anger. It builds a fucking anger, man, when you see people just floating through life. But like, you're going back to Michael Jordan. We're both born February 17th. Jim Brown, great running back, February 17th. I was like, oh my God. And as I started getting older, I realized, man, I can't even dunk a fucking basketball. Man, I can't fucking run, man. My, my, my legs are all fucked up. I can't run a football. I'm not these guys. So that's when I started gravitating towards like the Crawfords, the people like that that are in the book, just the normal everyday Joes. But they're not normal everyday Joes. What these guys had was courage, character, commitment, discipline. These are things that every human being can work on on their own. You don't need talent. You need discipline. And I said, like, man, I have that. So I started gravitating more towards the, the everyday person that went way beyond. They went to that blue to black line I talk about in the book. That blue to black line where you reach greatness. And I started realizing that's what I can do. I can outwork a motherfucker. I can outwork everybody. That's what it takes. I can't dunk. But over here, everything that I want is over here in this fucking pile of shit. Hard work, dedication, sacrifice. I can do that. I can do that all fucking day long. I can get up at three o'clock in the morning. I can outwork you. That's where I found greatness over there. And Dave, I'm curious, what's the thought process like for you right now? If you were to take someone inside of your psyche at three o'clock in the morning, it's freezing rain out. I mean, the, the Dave, David Goggins today, do you ever wake up and you want to do that? Or is just like the desire that not even in the picture? No, it is. Uh, like right now, it, it becomes harder every day. The more you get paid nicely, the more you buy nicer things, the more you go from sleeping on fucked up cots to sleeping on fucking, you know, mattresses that are formed to your shape of your body and heat temperatured and silk sheets and all this shit, man. Man, it's hard to get out of bed with some silk sheets, brother. And that fucks people up. That's why I ain't got silk sheets. And this is the thing about it. I started going through a time in my life where I started becoming more successful. With, with, with more success, it became harder for me to be Goggins. So what I started doing was I went back to the old school. Like I said, nothing is learned at the top of a mountain. I had to go back to where David Goggins was fat in his mind. And I said, how did you get to where you are? I became feelingless. And what that means is I'm not saying turn off your feelings towards your family, your wife, your husband. I'm not saying that. Turn your feelings off when it comes down to you wanting to be better. What that means is when that alarm clock goes off, your feelings gotta go away. It's raining outside, it's cold outside, when you don't wanna put those long hours in at work, that's what I'm talking about, your feelings must go away. When you know everybody's gone home to their families, but you know you wanna be the top salesperson in the world, or you wanna be the fucking best lawyer in the world, whatever the fuck it is, when everybody leaves to go home, and there's only one light on in a building, a 15-story building, and only one office. Every office is fucking dark. There's one office with one light on, and as those motherfuckers go from the club, they look up every day, two o'clock in the morning, they see that, and that fucking light's always on. That's the motherfucker right there you gotta be. You can't have feelings about when everybody leaves, oh man, I wish I was going home to my fucking beautiful family. That is true. But you got to learn to shut your feelings off if you want to achieve greatness. And greatness is only achieved when your feelings about that kind of shit. And let me say that kind of shit. So for those soft people who may be listening to this, don't put words in my mouth. I'm not talking about your fucking family and all that shit. I'm talking about the grind. The fucking grind. Your feelings have to go away. 
And when you reflect, because I imagine like somebody listening to this, let's uh, to just address the skeptic and they're saying, oh, I don't know. I don't know if I agree with Goggins. I think that's a little bit intense. That's a little too much. But is it worth it, though? Right. Because many of the people that are you know from a distance, they're looking up at the mountain. They don't see the person at the top and they never get that feeling. Right. They never get that feeling of achievement. They never get that feeling of of kind of ev- evolution in themselves. But just asking you, like, would you say looking back through it all, has it been worth it? Well, I put it this way, man. A lot of people say, don't be like him, like me. And I get it. And you say, was it worth it? It was worth it. I'm going to challenge these people who say, man, that's a little too much. It is. Which is why most of my message is for everybody. When it comes down to the uncommon, amongst the uncommon, it is only for point zero 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 one percent And these are the people who are want to be the uncommon amongst the uncommon. I'm talking about Grover. Michael Jordan is in that category. It's those people who realize what they want and beyond all things, I'm going to achieve it. So if you don't want to be like me, I get it. But is it so bad that a person has millions of dollars in the bank? Is it so bad that a person has two of the top books in the world, top of the list of all time? Is it bad that a person has broke all kinds of records? Is it bad that a person has been the Navy SEAL, Army Ranger, gone to Delta Force training, gone to Air Force, smoke jumper? Is, is that bad? Is that bad that by 40 fucking seven years old, you're trying to find what to do next? Is that so bad? Because you've done everything in the world because the second you thought about it, you did it? If that's bad, I don't want to see what good is. So why it's bad to most people? Because it looks exhausting and it is exhausting. And that's why it's bad to most people. Most things that are bad to people is because they can project what the fuck it takes to get there. And as they're fucking projecting that shit, they're like, Oh man, dude, you're destroying your life, your health. You have no family. You're unbalanced. I can make it a million things. But what the real thing is, you projected what the fuck that shit looks like. And it looks like fucking hell. It looks like hard work. It looks like suffering. It looks like a dedication that people don't understand. And it is that. But that at the end of all that shit, my friend... I front-loaded my life, front-loaded. Everything I wanted to do, I did the second I thought about it. Now 47, I am 100% retired, and I still live like I'm not by choice. Most people don't have a choice. I worked my ass off, and now I have choices. When I went to go speak to you guys, I could have said no like I do to 99% of motherfuckers. I don't need that fucking money. But guess what? It was my choice. Most people have taken that word out of their vocabulary. They get a boss saying, get the fuck up. Come here now. Answer the phone now. Get to these emails now. Everybody goes to that time. But I always knew David Goggins was going to be his own boss. And I am now. And now I say, go fuck yourself. I ain't doing that. And David, as, as we come to a close, this being the Game Changer Attorney podcast, what does being a game changer mean to you? When I hear game changer to me, it's exactly what we've been talking about for the last hour. Game changer is all encompassing. People look at, oh my God, this guy's a game changer. No, game changer is a very, very big big topic. It has a lot of things shoved into that. You don't just show up and you're a game changer. You don't show up to game changing, man. It's something that you have to harness. Something that you want to be. You have to be that person that has developed a game changer mindset. A person that wants to be the uncommon amongst the uncommon. You are not a game changer. If What I say right now offends you, scares you, makes you like, oh man, I don't know if that's for me. You're not a game changer. A game changer is the motherfucker that says, 
I've been training my entire life to take the big shot. I'm not talking about fucking a basketball shot, man. I'm talking about a person that knows their value and knows that when they come to the table, it's the best in the fucking world. That's why now my price is so high and everything I do and everything I do, everything is high because I am a game changer, not being arrogant. A game changer has built that belief through hard work. They know who they are and they bring the difference to the table. Game changes everything, man, but there's very few people who have that ability to do that. No, a lot of people can do it, but very few people want to put in the discipline, the hard work, and the dedication to become a game changer. I want to give a huge thank you to David Goggins for taking the time to speak with us today, and I want to thank you, yes you, for listening to this podcast and for your commitment to growing as a leader. If you found this episode valuable, here are three free ways that I can help you grow your law firm. Number one, download the first chapter of my book absolutely free at GameChangingAttorney.com. Number two, you can shoot me a text at 404-531-7691 and I'll answer any question that you've got for me. And finally, number three, if you can leave this podcast a five-star review, it'll help us gain access to more influential thought leaders and bring their lessons learned here to you. For more information on our interview with David Goggins, see the show notes for this episode in your podcast app or visit GameChangingAttorney.com.